it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. Hello and welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I'm your guest host in the seat for today, Ben Dominich. Good to be with you on this Friday, the last Friday of 2022, and to talk to you about a number of different subjects that I think are of great importance coming out of 2022. The top stories from the year we'll be getting into a conversation about politics, about foreign policy, uh, about what to expect in the new year with a number of great guests, including uh, Josh Krauschauer, Eli Lake, and Rachel Campos-Duffy coming up in the next couple of hours. But I wanted to start with one story that I think absolutely is a major headline coming out of 2022. And I think that that is the story about a new consensus on China here in Washington, but also across the country and across much of the world. 25 years ago, the United States had a consensus about China, a bipartisan one, that was built on a lot of hope, spin, and money. The idea was that the trauma of Tiananmen Square and the nature of their true economic intentions was something to be concerned about, but the potential for capitalist principles to lead China in the right direction uh, from the perspective of the West uh, was really uh, a real positive for the potential in the 21st century. Uh, You had, you know, people like Henry Kissinger writing books about it. You had think tank scholars writing pieces about it. You had Republicans and Democrats alike parroting this line that capitalist principles could bring China and the Chinese Communist Party uh, into this new century in a way that would be positive for not just them, but for the rest of the world as well. You even saw that headline notoriously from the New York Times' Tom Friedman about dreaming what the United States could accomplish if it was only willing to be China for a day. What followed after all of this bipartisan consensus was events, dear boy, events. And the United States now finds itself in a very different position when it comes to China as does most of the rest of the world. The ubiquitous global acceptance of Made in China has changed a lot more about us than we thought, perhaps, at the time. Uh, I want to take you back to May of 1997, when President Bill Clinton took the stage in front of a gathering of of business leaders in uh, the old executive office building right next to the White House to announce that he would push for a renewal of China's most favored nation status. That's cut 19. The United States has a huge stake in the continued emergence of China in a way that is open economically and stable politically. Uh, Of course, we hope it will come to respect human rights more and the rule of law more, and that China will work with us to secure an international order that is lawful and decent. This simply means that we extend to China the same normal trade treatment that uh, virtually every other country on earth receives from the United States. We believe it's the best way to integrate China further into the family of nations and to secure our interests and our ideals. 
You know, I think that this uh, approach was obviously something that had been uh, done by a number of presidents before Bill Clinton. But at the time, in the late 1990s, when he announced this, it was actually more controversial than it had been previously. There was this interesting coalition that was opposed to continued most favored nation status uh, that consisted of a lot of labor groups on the left and a lot of socially conservative Christian groups on the right uh, who were concerned about you know labor and the effect of China's uh, products uh, it, when it came to affecting America's trade going forward uh, and, of course, the, the uh, future of workers across the heartland of America. And on the other side, there was uh, this concern about the level of human rights violations that China was regularly participating in and the kind of hidden nature that they had in terms of not letting the rest of the world see what was really going on within their country. But at the time, most favored nation status was endorsed by then House Speaker Newt Gingrich. Uh, It was endorsed by uh, some prominent Democrats as well, and obviously Bill Clinton backed it. There was a more fractious debate than you might expect, but ultimately it passed. That world seems like a completely different country today. Uh, It's a world away from where we are going to be in 2023 when the opposition to the People's Republic of China coming from Washington is one of the rare bipartisan uh, views of America's governing elite. Uh, Really, it's, uh, I think, uh, due to the long-term strategic vision that Donald Trump advanced when it came to China, but it's also, uh, you know, something that's been accepted by uh, the his follower in the White House, uh, Joe Biden, who really has not backed away from a number of the Trump era policies as it relates to China, tariffs included. The question in over the past several years was whether there was going to be a reorientation. The question in 2023 is how far we're going to go with it. And to me, it's a a real story about the ratcheting up of economic conflict, uh, the acceleration of of, uh, really uh, horrible human rights violations that have reached this tipping point when it comes to our relationship with China in a way that I think we all should understand. First, there was the failure of that narrative that Bill Clinton advanced in 1997. China Uh, despite his hopes, was not integrated into the family of nations by trade relations. It didn't come to respect human rights and the rule of law. Instead, they participated, obviously, in uh, the destruction of Hong Kong's independence. Uh, They seized uh, much of the territory in the South China Sea. Uh, And, of course, you're familiar with the genocidal actions that they've taken toward Uyghurs and towards other citizens that they find to be inconvenient to their regime. There's also this strategic miscalculation that the Chinese made that I think we should understand. Xi Jinping's uh, regime deprived a lot of these Western elites who had vouched for them of their ability to continue their cover campaign for good relations. They targeted them, their businesses, their political leaders, and through the theft of intellectual property, the expansionist mineral grabs that we've seen across the globe, particularly in Africa, and the outright seizure of a lot of big company assets, that's undermined their status as any kind of trustworthy trading partner, and it's made it impossible for a lot of these more globalist-minded elites to continue their defense of them. It's just embarrassing. There was also these a series of embarrassing diplomatic errors. Uh, you could 
you know, do a whole hour on all of these, but just to use a couple as an example, the decision to humiliate Barack Obama at the Hangzhou airport during the 2016 G20 meeting, you may remember this. The Air Force One arrived and there was no red carpet rolled out. There was also uh, no stairs provided to exit the airplane, uh, which forced the president to go through a rarely deployed exit in the belly of the plane. At the time, China expert Bill Bishop pronounced it as a straight-up snub. Look, we can make the president go out the ass of the plane, he said. It was a calculated step, and it was designed to degrade the president, which, of course, Obama went along with, as he did with so many ways that degraded the presidency. And China returned to this playbook as soon as you saw Joe Biden ascend to the presidency in that Alaska meeting that happened at the beginning of his presidency. You may recall this, where Chinese diplomats shocked Secretary of State Tony Blinken by using virtually every argument that you might find in a Black Lives Matter playbook against him, pronouncing uh, you know, the United States a prison state, denouncing U.S. hypocrisy on human rights, and saying, quote, many people within the United States actually have little confidence in the democracy of the United States. It's the same kind of leftist tropes uh, that Tony Blinken might be used to hearing from uh, sort of squad-adjacent progressives in his own party, but not something he was used to hearing from fellow diplomats. The Chinese regime took this aggressive approach just as its status around around the world was growing uh, a lot more divisive. They kept making belligerent errors toward other uh, nations, uh, not just in Asia, um, but also toward Japan. You know, one of the things that I think is, uh, you know, underrated as a development in the last month or so is that Japan has announced that it's going to become the world's third largest defense spender after the U.S. and China, something that would have been unthinkable if not for the Chinese overreach that we've seen in recent years. It sets the stage for a potential showdown over Taiwan in the region that Japan now believes it needs to prepare for. And outside of the handful of people here domestically who are sympathetic to the populist right, which is to say nearly all of them, uh, America's foreign policy elites uh, were totally willing to make excuses for China during all of this so long as they kept the money uh, for themselves and were not targeted by the People's Republic of China's apparatus in so many different respects. But Xi's decisions galvanized a turn in perception among America's elites. You just saw today uh, him having this virtual meeting with Vladimir Putin. It's a meeting that's taking place because the Ukraine invasion, which she gave permission for during the Beijing Olympics, uh, that uh, has gone so badly for Russia and is continually becoming an increasing embarrassment for China in terms of allowing it to go forward, something that uh, really was the the final you know confirmation for Putin that it was the thing that he ought to do, and of course you see this uh, Xi's decision uh, to return Chinese governance to this Mao era dictator for life system uh, at the last party meeting uh, in, the, uh, in November it totally crushed any concept of the country continuing uh, to liberalize in any real respect. Then of course there's their response to the pandemic. There's an emerging majority opinion, not just here in Washington, but really among the elite generally, that the lab leak hypothesis is more likely than not the truth. We'll find out, I think, as we continue to investigate this in the coming Congress. But certainly it's something that is uh, only considered likely 
uh, because uh, people do not any longer believe the kind of spin that China is putting out there. Their propaganda and their lies may be acceptable for someone like Anthony Fauci. Remember, he speaks for the science. Uh, but the, the simple fact that China lied so much at the beginning of this pandemic uh, meant that it left a lot of people around the world unprepared in ways uh, that they might have done things differently in terms of not just travel bans, but expectations about the nature of this uh, virus that, uh, you know, really, I think, has prompted the resentment of, of a lot of global elites uh, who feel that they were betrayed by someone who had been a partner to them in the past. And of course, the populace uh, it feels this as well. A popular American understanding of China has possibly never been lower. And for American citizens, even those who are outside of the political and business elite, uh, they understand that China is to blame for the hollowing out of America's industrial base. Uh, they understand the significance of the land grabs that they've made, of their dominance of American higher education. Uh, and the simple fact is that they understand China more and more as an oppositional foe as opposed to a potential ally or a liberalized nation in the future. And even for consumers who haven't been affected directly by this industrial decline, I think that they do understand the aggressive nature that China has taken within the culture war. Uh, this is something that I think people underrate as being an example of how much they've made this error uh, in a way that is apparent, not just to people within industries, but uh, who just are you know, consuming broader pop culture and the like. We see one incident after another with LeBron James in the NBA, with John Cena, with Apple, where American companies and celebrities are meant to bend the knee to Chinese overlords in ways that are just offensive to the American mindset. We shouldn't have to do this. And when that Taiwan flag came off the jacket in Top Gun Maverick and then was put back in in the release, I think that says something about our changing attitude toward China and how much we're willing to be pushed around by them anymore. In 2022, I think the biggest story potentially in terms of the globe was the fact that we have now a true bipartisan consensus against China and its works we want to push back against them. We do not want to be beholden to them. And we want to make a, a better path forward where we will not have to depend on them for our livelihoods, for our resources, or in the global sphere. I'm Ben Dominich. You're listening to The Guy Benson Show. We'll be back with more right after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. And we're back on The Guy Benson Show. I'm your guest host for the day, Ben Dominich. You can follow me on Twitter at Dominich. I've been talking about the uh, emerging bipartisan consensus about the People's Republic of China, which I think, again, is one of the rare instances of agreement between Republicans and Democrats in the leadership class in Washington and around the country. One of the things that's going to emerge in this new Congress is a select committee on China, to which uh, the chairmanship has already been given to Wisconsin Republican Mike Gallagher. You may have seen him on the airwaves on Fox in recent weeks and months. 
He's going to be tasked with a lot of different things related to the PRC, uh, including prioritizing, you know, potential uh, uh, screening of investments, improvement to manufacturing and onshoring production, uh, in, and uh, you know, dealing with our capacity to both, uh, you know, have other sources for the needed chips that we have uh, and of course you know uh, going down the road of things backed by democrats like uh, california representative rokana when it comes to preparing america for the potential major conflict that we might have with china over taiwan and of course the military investments needed to deny uh, china any kind of uh, image of taiwan as being a soft target as russia thought ukraine would be the Democracy of 24 million people that is right off its shores is certainly top of mind uh, for Xi Jinping and the Chinese regime, which has seen a dramatic increase in their investment in their navy and their overall military buildup. Of course, that military buildup has yet to be tested. We don't really know how strong they are or how capable they are when it comes to an actual conflict. But from my perspective, what Gallagher's rise really precipitates is a shift in conversation generationally. He represents the first millennial tasked with something like this uh, and a real shift away from a generation that is invested in the politics and the political decisions of the past. He's gone through the experience of having multiple deployments to Iraq uh, and having his own opinions shift about the wars in the Middle East. And he doesn't have necessarily the same blinkers that a lot of people within the existing foreign policy class have about earlier conflicts where they were on potentially you know, sides that ultimately did not prove to be right. From the perspective of China, it's important to understand that the, the developments that brought them to this po point were not foreordained. They were a product of choices made by their leadership class. And it seems to me that in a time when we were, you know, getting all of these goods from them very cheaply, in a time when, you know, we saw the ability to buy TVs and technology, you know, reduced to the point where even, you know, working class families could avoid, afford amazing products, the assumption was that we would just be willing to go along with everything else that they wanted to import along with those cheap goods. Well, it turns out that's not actually the case. There are points where we say we would rather pay more and be able to look ourselves in the mirror than contribute to the advancement of this overarching and, frankly, fascist regime in so many respects. I'm Ben Dominich. You're listening to The Guy Benson Show. Coming up next, we'll have Eli Lake join us to talk about the top foreign policy stories of 2022. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. And we're back on The Guy Benson Show. I'm your host for the day, Ben Dominich. You can follow me on Twitter at B Dominich. 
I'm happy to be joined right now by Eli Lake, host of the Reeducation Podcast with Eli Lake, which I encourage you to subscribe to. Uh, he has a great episode, which we'll talk about in a moment, uh, in most recently with a, a conversation with Michael Moynihan about the legacy of the great uh, Christopher Hitchens. Eli, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. Thanks so much for having me. So I wanted to talk to you about some of the top stories in the foreign policy world coming out of 2022. I've talked a good bit about China, and today Putin and Xi had a virtual meeting where they you know, declared their uh, forever bromance uh, and the like against those evil people in the West. How real is that, uh, and how much have doubts about Russia uh, increased in China from your perspective since this Ukraine war began? Well, I definitely think it's real, and we've seen the warming of ties between Moscow and Beijing be- since for the last few years, really. Um, it makes sense if you think about it. These are two authoritarian states that have an interest in um, undermining, you could say, the sort of rules of the international order. They both um, see America as the enemy and America's allies as the enemy, and they want to diminish American influence in the world. So they have, um, you know, overlapping interests at this point. So I think it's important. I think the West in general is sort of late to understanding that it's pointless to try to triangulate here, which is to try to either be an ally of Russia against China or an ally of China against Russia. Um, th- those are not options available, although it would be nice if they were. And so in that respect, they do have um, abiding kind of interest. But on the other hand, they also have uh, you know, problems. I mean, what we've seen with the Ukraine war is that the great Russian army that was so highly touted before 2022, because it had mastered these kinds of new forms of hybrid warfare, is a Potemkin joke. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Russian army is beset with corruption. Its equipment is not reaching the front lines. Uh, it's not very good equipment. Um, the you know the morale is is quite poor. The um, officers you know are are themselves you know uh, you know becoming targeted and so forth. So. In a lot of ways, I think that that diminishes the standing of Russia in the eyes of China, and it's very much of a junior partner. So I think it's very significant. Vladimir Putin launched this war in part, according to his own words, to restore the sort of greatness of Russia to uh, on the world stage. And what he has proven is that Russia is a junior partner to the emerging power of China, which, as we also have seen, has its own problems with its pathetic and you know draconian zero COVID policy, which has you know sparked rebellions all over the country. Um, the fact that it's um, it's a highly touted vaccine uh, clearly did not work. So a lot of the states that relied on China for their patronage um, ended up having an inferior vaccine, and their population suffered. So these are two countries that are definitely aligning, and that is a problem for U.S. interests. But we have to keep in mind that there are also structural weaknesses with these countries as well because they're such authoritarian monsters. Mm -hmm. You know, you saw obviously the visit from Vladimir Zelensky to Washington that was much hyped and resulted in this, you know, address to the Congress. I'm curious about what you think about American domestic attitudes toward the conflict in Ukraine. They've sent them all this money, all this weaponry. 
they still generally have the support of the American population, certainly the support of Democrats. Republicans seem to be more evenly split now, though, about uh, continued funding or feeling like, you know, this is becoming too costly in certain ways. What do you uh, see as the as the way forward going into next year? Uh, and do you think that Ukraine is going to be satisfied uh, with some type of peace deal that ultimately does not, uh, you know, include uh, some kind of opportunity for them to take Crimea? I mean, at this point, the Russians have shown zero interest in any kind of peace agreement with Ukraine. So we should make that very clear. The problem is not Ukraine. The problem is not, you know, America, the Biden administration. The problem is the person who launched the war, Vladimir Putin, and he has shown no kind of contrition, no sense that he has bitten off more than he could chew, no interest in um, approaching um, the negotiating table in a war that uh, is costing his country dearly in both blood and treasure. Second point about what your question about the domestic situation and the Republican Party. Um, I understand, uh, and I want to say this with some sympathy here, that after six years now of, you know, moronic uh, neo-McCarthyite bleeding about everyone who disagrees with you on foreign policy is a Russian agent (laughs) and all of the sham and um, just chicanery and nonsense of what we call Russiagate, I can understand why a lot of Republicans would throw up their hands and say, I'm not going to have any of it. Mm -hmm. But in this particular case, we should not lose sight of the fact that Russia is an adversary of the United States, that Russia is a force for destabilization in the world, and that we now have a country and an army that is willing and capable of exposing Russia's army for being, as I said before, the sort of Potemkin mess that it is, that this is the best money the United States has ever spent. Mm -hmm. No Americans are dying in this war. The Ukrainians are bravely defending their own country, and they are hopefully providing a kind of cautionary tale, a sort of lesson for other uh, you know, aggressive, expansionist-minded tyrants, whether it be chi- uh, China and, you know, Xi or Khamenei in Iran, um, that it's not going to be so easy. You can't just have a cakewalk and take over countries because you feel like doing it like Vladimir Putin. Let his experience be a lesson to them. And to have that lesson being taught without any Americans having to be forward deployed is next to miraculous. So it's a great geopolitical bargain for the United States. It's actually very cheap to do it this way. It's preferable to do it this way. And um, so I think it's, I understand why a lot of Republicans, again, are um, so turned off and and disgusted by Russiagate, and I share their disgust in that regard, but we should not lose sight of the forest for the trees. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the end of this war, do you believe that that's something we're going to see in the coming year, early in the coming year, or do you think it's going to potentially go through the full year? I don't know. Um, I will say this, that um, the price the Ukrainians are paying right now with the attacks on their infrastructure, the attacks on their energy, um, the shortages, the blackouts, and everything like that is extraordinarily high. And the fact that there is no indication 
not only from Zelensky himself, but the you know his position. He's a democratically elected leader. He, the Ukrainians are not interested in um, being forced to the negotiating table. They're not interested in a kind of halfway peace. The Russians initiated this war, and they are going to. And they're 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 unfortunately. Uh, exacting a horrible and, and needless and reckless price on the Ukrainians. It's a terrible thing that they're doing. I hope that, you know, the Putin and his cronies will pay. You know, I hope their children will never be allowed to travel to the West or go to Western universities and all of that. But if the Ukrainians are willing to sort of tough this out, then I, I just don't understand the logic of having, you know, other powers that are just sort of watching to tell them, no, 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 enough is enough. So. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about your perspective on our relationship with NATO and EU members uh, in in the wake of this war. There had obviously been a, a real pressure campaign uh, during the Trump era to make them pay more for their own defense. Uh, it, one of the big things that the uh, President Biden touts is that the, you know NATO is more united than ever and the like. Uh, it does seem to have been strengthened uh, by this conflict, and obviously uh, you've seen uh, the uh, the moves from. Finland and Sweden, uh, as it regards joining NATO. Uh, tell me a little bit about your perspective on these nations, and do you believe that they really will end up significantly increasing their defense expenditures uh, in the way that we've seen Japan do in anticipation of more Chinese belligerence? All signs at this point point to two really uh, almost revolutionary developments in Europe. One is what you just mentioned, which is that I do think we have seen commitments to actually you know, have, you know, realistic and serious spending on their own defense. And that, that will take more than just the money. It will take kind of a, a, a sense of national nerve. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you worry about you kind of have to look that country to country. But the other big thing is, is the is the emphasis now on building nuclear power plants. It's, it's the it's the thing that um, it, it really we're going to look back and we're going to say the no nukes movement of the 70s and 80s after Chernobyl and Three Mile Island and then later with Fukuyama in Japan, we were um, hobbling ourselves in the West because Mm -hmm. it made us more dependent on countries like Russia, uh, for that matter, Iran, um, you know, for our energy. And for to, to be able to have nuclear power, to see that in Germany, to see that, you know, France is already kind of ahead on this one, that is the game changer. And in order to make that transition, guess who's buying time for Europe to wean itself from Russian natural gas? Well, it's the brave Ukrainians. Again, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I see it as, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, Congress is giving them $44 billion more dollars. It's, it's, it's on the cheap. It's a bargain. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that when it comes to uh, the domestic arguments within the right about foreign policy, a lot of what we've seen uh, emerge in uh, the wake of the 2022 midterms and the like, is a real question about whether there's going to be as much of a presence as a lot of people thought there was going to be for folks who are kind of questioning the considered mainstream conservative uh, view of foreign policy on the right. You had a lot of people who had raised concerns about that, people like Blake Masters, uh, you know, end up losing in their elections. You know, J.D. Vance is someone who's been, uh, you know, a critic of kind of that conventional approach. What do you think is going to happen in the next year as some of these newer members show up in Washington? Do you think it's going to have a significant impact in reorienting the future-looking foreign policy of the right? Well, 
I mean, there's a great book by Matthew Continetti called The Right, which looks at the last hundred years of conservative thought in America and the Republican Party. And there's always been a tradition among conservatives that is sometimes known as isolationism and is more inward looking. And so that's something in some ways to be expected. But I would also say that a lot of the um, kind of, you know, new critics of internationalism, you might want to say, it's it's there's an expression that, you know, the generals are always fighting the last war where, well, these people are opposing the last war. They're mm-hmm. opposing the nation building war of Iraq and Afghanistan, which I think if you were to ask, you know, even liberal internationalists like myself, and I say small L, not like big L, yes. but you know what I mean? Um, you know, yeah, I don't know. I think there are limits to what the United States can do in terms of, you know, building modern democracies and, you know, the middle of the Islamic world, 100 percent. So I would sort of agree with that. When you're talking about supporting the NATO alliance, that's a very, very different um, expenditure. It's a very different kind of foreign policy than the George W. Bush, almost neo-utopian wars of the early 2000s. And I think, that, and, and, and by the way, that, that sort of is sparked by 9-11 and the war on terror. Um, you know, as we're 20 years away or more than 20 years away from that horrific event, there is an, uh, you know, there's a kind of return to a level set um, in terms of U.S. foreign policy. We can't be everywhere at the same time. So I would hope that the J.D. Vance's and some of these newer members of the Republican Party, when they came to Washington, would kind of uh, take a longer view and accept that some of their critiques have already been taken in to account by the foreign policy establishment of the Republican Party that they're, in some cases, pushing on more of an open door than they might think, but that that should not preclude someone like J.D. Vance from becoming a supporter or, you know, or understanding the strategic necessity of giving Ukraine all of the equipment it needs to uh, you know, repel the, and break the Russian army. I mean, those are two separate things. You can say, I don't think we should do nation-building wars in the Middle East and still think that it's a good idea to teach Vladimir Putin lessons so that he doesn't get away with, you know, the, the sort of, you know, naked and, and vicious aggression that he started a year ago. Eli, before I let you go, uh, go ahead and plug yeah. your podcast. I uh, I was listening to you on uh, the drive in today talking about Christopher Hitchens uh, oh, well, and his legacy so with Michael Moynihan. Um, tell us, uh, why should p- folks listen to the re-education? <laughs> well, the re-education is a really... I, I love doing it. Um, you, can, you can still read my column in the New York Sun, and I write a lot for commentary, but I spend a lot of time on this. There is an audio essay in every episode. There's an interesting interview. We have done really cool shows on everything from uh, Iran's war on cultural freedom. Uh, if you're interested in the history of the FBI, there was a great episode I recently did with the author of a new biography of Hoover named Beverly Gage, where I get into uh, J. Edgar Hoover and you know his sort of uh, you know surveillance of Martin Luther King and the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, it is, I think, a really cool podcast for people who um, want a, a, an intellectual perspective on current events and culture, um, but still want to have some fun with it. Um, I you know they, we, I do about one of them a week, sometimes two a week. Um, and we cover we cover the gamut. I mean, there was one I did on Christmas songs, which I think people will really like. Yes. Um, so check it out. There's about 60 episodes. There's a long archive now, and um, I think everyone. I think I think it's a good show. <laughs> You'll like it. Great, folks should check it out. Re- the Reeducation with uh, Eli Lake. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today, Eli. 
Oh, thank you for having me, Ben. You're listening to The Guy Benson Show. I'm Ben Dominic, your guest host for today. We'll be back with more right after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. And we're back on The Guy Benson Show. I'm your guest host today, Ben Dominic. You can follow me on Twitter at BDominic. Let's go to Cut 11. But here's what I find amazing. This whole bill, which should never have been passed and wouldn't have been except some Republicans folded and went with it, all because they said it was an emergency. We absolutely have to do it. We have to do it now. But it's such an emergency that Biden took off and let that bill sit there on his desk. Great point. Now we had to get an Air Force plane to fly down <laughs> for his signature. And I'm asking myself, Tammy, I thought climate change meant that we didn't need to be flying these jets all over the place. There's no telling how much carbon was pumped into the atmosphere just to get that piece of paper down there for Joe Biden to sign it. That is, of course, the great Mike Huckabee. I just have to say I find it amazing that uh, the president can get away with this type of stupidity and ridiculousness. He didn't want to delay his vacation even one day so that he could sign this bill. And that really has led to this ridiculous state of affairs where the whole thing has to be flown down in a box for him to sign it. Look, I realize that we do things differently here in Washington. We don't read things before we sign them, which is something that I think is a real problem considering what is inside all of those things that are getting signed. But this takes it to a whole new level. To have this happen in the way that it did made me fantasize about the potential for a, a midair hijacking to maybe end this bill's possibility of actually becoming law. You're listening to The Guy Benson Show. I'm your guest host today, Ben Dominich. We'll be back with more in the next hour, including the top stories on politics for 2022 right after this. city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative guy benson show and we're back on the guy benson show i'm your host for today ben dominich you can follow me on twitter at b dominich and i'm happy to be joined right now by josh krauschauer who is the senior politics reporter for axios a fox news contributor josh thanks so much for taking the time to join me today Hey, Ben, great to be on the show, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. So it's been a pretty incredible 2022 midterm year and uh, a lot of political headlines. But I want to start with one that won't be resolved until next year, which is, of course, the speakership. We've seen these details reported today, uh, and a number of them reported over the past week or so about the concessions that Kevin McCarthy is willing to make uh, to some of the uh, recalcitrant Republicans who are unwilling to support him for the speakership right off the bat. What is your take on how this is going to play out? Do you think it's going to be enough? And what do you think about the development most recently of a number of moderate members of the Republican conference basically saying there's nobody else that we're willing to accept? Yeah, so I, it really comes down to which side – blinks first, because when you have as narrow a majority as Kevin McCarthy does in the House, 
you know, it just takes a few, uh, three or four uh, Republicans who don't want to support the, the McCarthy, don't want to support the leader, uh, to, to really put things in chaos. So now you have this competing faction of about 15 Republicans, all in districts that Joe Biden won in 2020, who are saying that they're only going to vote for Kevin McCarthy, and there's no no compromise or no no consensus pick that is, is an acceptable alternative. So someone's got to give. Something's got to give. So I, I do think it's a little more likely McCarthy ends up making more concessions. It makes enough to get at least a couple of the holdouts on board and, and getting to that to that 200 uh, what 218 uh, threshold. But boy, I mean, to do that, he he, he would start his speakership on a very weak start and having to make concessions to the most sort of nihilistic faction of the caucus isn't a sign is not a sign of strength you know it's a sign of vulnerability and uh you know maybe maybe you get a consent maybe maybe if it really turns chaotic you get someone like steve scalise to step in but i i think it's more likely you get enough of a couple of these holdouts to accept some concessions and uh you know would start start the mccarthy reign on a very inauspicious note one of the dynamics that I think is true here, though, is that this is a pretty non-desirable job to have, meaning if you're someone like Scalise, you're sort of saying, oh, you know, it's nice that you'd like me to do this. I'd rather wait another two years or maybe four before I do it, because this doesn't seem like a very uh, auspicious opportunity uh, for me to have a good speakership. Well, look, Nancy Pelosi gets all these plaudits for for her leadership skills, but she had the same narrow majority the past Congress with with the Democrats, and she had a hell of a time trying to get the progressives and the the pragmatists on the same page. So this is not an easy task for anyone. Um, You're you're dealing with an extremely narrow majority at a time when the, the ideologues tend to hold more sway. They have their own separate bases of power, and they don't, they're not as reliant on the party as they, they used to be. So, yeah, I mean, it's not a formula for success. It's not a job a lot of Republicans want. It's easy to complain about your leader. It's hard to actually do the job. Yeah, I think McCarthy sometimes gets a bum rap. Um, he, 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 the one skill, the, one of his biggest skills is that he's able to find some kind of consensus with a uh, ideologically diverse caucus of, of, of MAGA supporters and, and some, some moderates in the bunch, too. So, you know, the, the thing that he gets criticized for, for not really having any core, not not, not standing for anything, is also sort, sort of a, a good skill set for – can be a good skill set for the position as well when he tries to get as many people on the same page as, as possible. But look, all it takes is four, four or five wayward Republicans, which is what's happening as we get into the new year. My my vision of him is always as always is the leader of a fraternity uh, he's not the guy who's the life of the party. He's the guy who gets the party paid for. Um, and so that's that's the way I think about uh, Kevin. So when it comes to uh, other aspects of 2022, obviously the overarching headline uh, has to be considered to be the, the failure of these outsider candidates uh, that uh, former President Trump backed in the 2022 midterms, particularly in the Senate, where you actually had this what seemed like an, an impossible result, which is only one flipped seat, that obviously being in Pennsylvania, that flipped from Republican to Democrat, uh, and you didn't have any of these outsider candidates uh, prevail in uh, in these uh, very you know high dollar in many instances con- uh, contests across the country. So, what has that done to the the lessons that the the Senate uh, Republicans have taken away from that experience? Uh, what lessons, if any, have they learned from it? Well, in the most immediate sense, the new head of the the Senate Republican uh, Committee, uh, Steve Daines uh, from Montana, has all but declared that that they're going to get involved in primaries. They're going to try to endorse or get behind the 
most electable candidates and in a lot of these, these fields. And there are a lot of vulnerable Democrats in red states coming up for 2024, and you still have this narrow majority, 51 seats for the Democrats. So, you know, there's going to be a lot more due diligence paid to who's running in, in these races. Uh, even even in red states, like at Joe Manchin, like at John Tester, they can win against flawed Republican candidates, but they're going to be very vulnerable given uh, their states are getting more and more Republican. So uh, candidate quality matters. It's always mattered. The notion that that, that Rick Scott seemed to be almost uh, dismissive of <laughs> the type of candidates who are running and, and whether that makes a difference. And, and you've got a new boss who's going to be much more adherent to the McConnell line that, that uh, you need to have good horses to be running in the stables to, to win even even red state races. You know, and, and, and I think in the bigger picture, there's a big question over them. I mean, this 2024 is going to be a presidential year, so there's going to be a real big debate for the future of the party. Yeah, Who's going to be the nominee? Who's going to be leading the party? What, what are the different factions going to be fighting over? And that could be to the party's benefit in 2024 if you get a popular consensus-oriented uh, nominee for, for president, or it could, you know, be, be chaotic. Uh, that, that's going to be. That's why we play the games, as someone once said on ESPN. Um, <laughs> and that's that's going to be one of. My, I mean, one of the most fascinating and interesting storylines for me heading into the new year is how, how the party ends up trying to pick up the pieces and 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 rebuilding. And at a time when they're, you know, they, they they have the House majority, they won back the House. It's a big accomplishment. Uh, and they, they're only, you know, they're within a couple seats in the Senate, and they have a, a good chance. You know, if an 82 year old Biden is running for reelection, I, I would say that he nominate a good presidential challenger, and they've got. A a good fighting chance to, to win back the presidency as well. So they, it's a blow within the Republican Party's reach to get back power, but it, it all really does come down to making smart decisions at, at, the, at every, every, every level of uh, politics. You know, uh, talk to me for just a moment about Georgia, because I think that that sort of tells the weird story of the way that this cycle and the last one played out in the sense that, you know, you had, uh, you know, a handpicked choice uh, last time around uh, from from Mitch McConnell, who looked, you know, electable on paper, you know, uh, as one of the senators going into that. And then you had this handpicked choice by Trump and Herschel Walker, you know, certainly someone, a flawed candidate, but also someone with huge name ID and generally big popularity in, in, in Georgia, at least when he started out. You kind of had everybody fail within the Republican Party, except for Brian Kemp, who's doing just great. Uh, and so tell me a little bit about how that state kind of played out the way that it did uh, in a way that surprised, I think, people this time around uh, that that it uh, was as easily and handily won by Raphael Warnock as it was. Yeah, I mean, Georgia to me is a state that wants to vote Republican, especially in this type of political environment. Every Republican that ran statewide from, from Governor Kemp, but not just Governor Kemp, Secretary of State, the Attorney General, every statewide ticket uh, or, or candidate running for statewide office won pretty comfortably, except one Republican, and that was that was Herschel Walker, who underperformed by about three or four points and, and ultimately lost to Senator Warnock. Uh, it doesn't have, I mean, I, I don't think it's that hard to get a generic Republican, at least in this you know, type of political environment to, to get across the finish line in Georgia. It actually takes some work to get a bad candidate who can't win in this type of political environment in Georgia in, during the year 2022. So, you know, I, 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 think, I think you also bring up a very fair criticism of, of the so-called establishment. Governor Kemp, you know, handpicked someone like Kelly Leffler, who was this, uh, you know, very wealthy businesswoman 
who, you know, frankly had a lot of flaws of her own, and she was the first Republican to lose to, to Raphael Warnock. Um, you know, I think sometimes some some Republican donors' perception of who the most electable candidate is because they have ties to them in the donor community or because they have money to spend of their own on a campaign, that's not necessarily the kind of candidate that connects with, with your average swing voter or your average voter you need to get out to the polls uh, in an election. So, um, you know, I, I, I think that there is sort of a middle ground that Doug Collins, you know, who ran against Leffler in that primary, may have been the better candidate uh, in a general election in that election. And, and there are a lot of other Republican congressmen and business leaders and military veterans in the state of Georgia that probably would, would run better campaigns than what we've seen in, in recent years. But I, I don't think the bar is that high, to be honest. Georgia, Arizona is another state, Ben, where uh, I don't think I think that's another state. You know, you know it very well that yeah. they, they want you to anticipate You anticipated my next question, which was they want to vote was, Republican. They just yeah, the right they want candidate. they seem to they seem to want to vote Republican. And yet those Republicans are not necessarily provided to them. Yeah, I mean, and, and you, it's remarkable. Like, I, I, I'm, a, you know, I, I kind of do deep dives on all the data after the elections are over. And Arizona has, over the last two elections, had a remarkable number, a historic number, really, of, of Republicans, people who identify as Republicans, who register with the Republican Party, that have voted for Kirsten Sinema in the 2018 election, Democrat, and voted for Joe Biden in 2020, and then this year voted against Carrie Lake and Blake Masters, but but did vote down ballot for Republican congressman and voted for some state treasurer who's Republican. I mean, these, these are these are suburban Phoenix, these are McCain Republicans, suburban voters who are, you know, conservative on a whole lot of issues, but just are, are very, very resistant to the very MAGA-oriented uh, candidates that, that were put up in many of these races in Arizona. You know, I think one of the things going forward that we're going to have to work through is the idea that so many people have been inspired uh, by the former president to run for office on sort of a shared set of ideological principles. But also they've assumed, I think, that politics is easier to do than perhaps, uh, you know, as an outsider, than perhaps is thought. That, you know, that you can just throw out the playbook that everybody uses and you don't have to do the basic things that they do in terms of setting up fundraising operations, you know, the, the way that you, uh, you know, walk and, and knock on doors as opposed to just trying to do everything through earned media attention and the like. Uh, and I think that what a lot of people may have learned this time around is that, you know, yes, you can run on a shared set of policies or ideas, but there's a reason that that playbook kind of exists. And, uh, and, and politics isn't perhaps quite as easy to do as an outsider as people think. That is such a good point. That, that politics is hard work, and, and frankly, it, it, a lot of people who may want to get into public service may not w- want to do all the work and, and all the glad handing and, and all the, the time that it takes to represent a, an entire state. It's, it's not easy to do a campaign. It's not easy to govern. And you know, Blake. The, one of the stories that was reported about Blake Masters in the Arizona Senate race is he looked at Martha McSally, who was the unsuccessful Republican nominee in the last election, and he thought she was. An, I mean, she was. Awful, and anyone could do the job. Anyone could run for for uh, office in Arizona as a Republican and win. And he had his own ideas on what it would take to win uh, in a very heterodox, unconventional way. And he actually did worse in a, in a better political environment than even Martha McSally. So this is not easy. I mean, it's, a lot of people. I think arrogance can be the, the biggest the sin when it comes to politics and thinking you can do it as better than, than the next person. When you know, it does take a lot of work to to raise the money, to, to have an appealing message, to actually learn the policy. And uh, people who think they can wing it or not not do the blocking and tackling of politics are ultimately going to find themselves falling short. So, final question for you, Josh. You know, looking out a year from now. 
you know, with the primaries fully in swing, uh, two questions for you. Do you believe that Joe Biden will be uh, without challenge the top of the ticket for the Democrats? And do you believe that someone other than Donald Trump will be leading the polling stakes cut to, you know, December of next year? So to no- question number two, I, I do think that it was certainly if Ron DeSantis runs at the end of the, the Florida legislative session in the spring or summer, uh, that would be uh, a, a big moment. And I think DeSantis would actually start out with the advantage. Whether he'd win the nomination, that's another, another story. But I do think yeah. Trump is very vulnerable and DeSantis would take the lead early on. Uh, you know, the, I still have a hard – you see these focus groups. I, I got to witness a whole bunch of them during the 2022 election. The, the age issue is still a big, big problem for Biden. I don't think anyone wants to talk about it in Washington, but being 82 and, and running uh, for four more years, I, I, I think there's going to be a moment when the rubber hits the road. And I, I do think there's going to be someone running against him in a primary. Um, may, may, may not be a serious challenger, but, but someone who will at least be on the ballot. And I do think there's going to be some second thoughts, especially if Trump doesn't look like the, the front runner to win the Republican nomination. There may be some second guessing in Democratic circles on whether they want someone uh, of that age to, to run and not be, uh, you know, have that vulnerability of, of the age contrast in a presidential race. It's a much different scenario if he's on stage with uh, Ron DeSantis than he is with uh, Donald Trump at the end of these stakes. Uh, Josh Krauschauer, senior politics reporter for Axios. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thanks, Ben. You're listening to The Guy Benson Show. I'm your guest host for the day, Ben Dominich. We'll be back with more right after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Last night, in conjunction with the Pennsylvania State Police, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, detectives arrested 28-year-old Brian Christopher Kohlberger in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania on a warrant for murder of Ethan, Zena, Madison, and Kaylee. I want to personally thank these agencies for their assistance in this case. Koberger resides in Pullman, Washington, and is a graduate student at Washington State University. We will provide as much information as we can about the extradition to Idaho and the criminal process. However, Due to Idaho state law, we are limited in what information we can release today until Kohlberger has been has his initial appearance in Idaho court. And we're back on the Guy Benson Show. I'm your guest host today, Ben Dominich. You can follow me on Twitter at B Dominich. Those were just the words from Moscow, Idaho Chief of Police James Fry, who was outlining uh, the arrest details related to this suspect who has now been charged uh, with four counts of uh, murder. This is a obviously gruesome story. It's horrible. But uh, I think at this point we just have to say that, you know, our our plaudits go out to those who worked so hard to try to track him down uh, and bring him into custody. Uh, already some of the details that have emerged have been very disturbing in terms of uh, his history. Uh, he is a Ph.D. student uh, nearby in uh, Washington State, uh, and uh, some of the things that have been uh, posted uh, al- along the lines of the research that he was doing related to criminal acts uh, are certainly things that do not dispose one uh, to think of this man as anything uh, less than a, a really horrible ind- individual in so many different respects. The the thing that I think sticks out to us, uh, you know, in all these cases is that 
we have confidence uh, that they will receive, uh, you know, the best attention from law enforcement, and that, that we will ultimately find uh, the people who are guilty. And yet, this is not the case in so many of the different shootings and murders that go on across the country that happen downtown in major American cities, cities like Chicago, where we saw, you know, incredible uh, heights of, of gun crime in this past year. I think we need to pay as much attention to the kind of crimes that go on in the inner city uh, as we do to situations like this involving these uh, young uh, students in in such a gruesome manner. They may take over our airwaves, but there are lives that are lost uh, just the same in places that do not have that level of attention. I'm Ben Dominich. You're listening to this edition of The Guy Benson Show on the last Friday in 2022. We'll be back with more right after this. Listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. And we're back on the Guy Benson Show. I'm your guest host today, Ben Dominich, on this last Friday of 2022. You can follow me on Twitter at BDominich. So you may have seen the headlines about the arrest of influencer Andrew Tate in Romania. He's someone who may be on the periphery of your knowledge, but he's a very influential guy within a certain class of uh, men online, uh, particularly those who've engaged in in pretty aggressive activity uh, toward women. He's someone who has uh, popped up uh, on at various points for being someone who is a uh, critic of modern-day feminism, uh, who has gone after uh, a number of different tropes on the left uh, and been hailed by uh, a number of different uh, conservatives over recent years for being willing to take on the kind of radical feminist agenda in lots of different ways. He's also a scumbag and someone who has been widely known for quite a long time. Indeed, it's the reason that he ultimately, you know, uh, apparently moved from the UK into uh, into Romania and into other parts of Europe uh, as being someone who is engaged reportedly in human trafficking, uh, literally engaging uh, young women to, in a an effort to uh, use them to produce pornography, which is then sold through his website and other websites uh, to profit from them, and uh, using a lot of different methods uh, under his own comments to deprive men of money uh, by convincing them that these women are in love with them or or other methods that are clearly untoward. He was arrested the other day, finally, after what is purportedly a months-long investigation on the part not just of Romanian officials but others as well. Uh, And now the latest reporting uh, is that after that arrest, uh, he is being detained for at least 30 days uh, with a potential for another 150 days as the investigation continues. Uh, Their current charges uh, would amount to, uh, for him and for his brother, uh, would amount to more than 20 years in prison if they are convicted. Uh, There's significant evidence and jail time that is coming down, and the prosecutor who has been named to go after them 
is the chief prosecutor behind some of the biggest cases in Romania, including taking on uh, drug traffickers and uh, people who have engaged in really you know, awful behavior. It's clearly something that is a priority for the government there. For someone who's been very public in flaunting his wealth, uh, his collections of cars, uh, and uh, you know, getting into scraps most recently, and this is one you may have seen, with the likes of Greta Thunberg, uh, what's clear over the course of Andrew Tate's history is that he's someone who uh, gets in these stupid scraps with uh, other influencers, other people who are big online, uh, in order to kind of trade barbs and then benefit from uh, the uh, the attention that he gets for it, whether or not he actually wins the argument or not. He's big among uh, a certain set of teenage boys uh, who uh, look up to him as, for his kind of <laughs> ridiculous over the top uh, i mean it, it the most uh the best comparison that i've seen is to uh, the WWF's uh, era of Degeneration X back in the day, uh, just kind of in-your-face, over-the-top, uh, flamboyant uh, and uh, and uh, rejection of norms, uh, of uh, asser- assertions of wealth and of uh, sexual prowess and the like, which are designed to insult people. Uh, and, you know, frankly, I think that this is a situation where, uh, you know, Tate has clearly revealed himself over the years through his own statements in his own quotes uh, to be just a, a really degenerate individual, someone who should not be looked up to as a role model at all. And yet he's been able to find some fandoms on the right simply because of the enemies that he creates, because he's going after people uh, who, you know, they also agree are are in the wrong, you know, whether it's Greta Thunberg or whether it's radical feminists or the like. And that in his kind of ridiculous over-the-top way, in some ways people espouse this as a form of American masculinity. You know, from my perspective, the opposite is true. The actual, uh, you know, measure of someone who is ought to be looked up to by the community is is the fellow who works two jobs uh, and comes home feeling sore and takes care of their sick kid at night. That's the kind of thing that you know we should look up to as uh, you know groups of Americans who have our priorities in the right place, not people who say you know that they are exploiting women uh, in order to you know rack up their sexual prowess numbers or uh, for profit in order to buy new sports cars and uh, and flash that wealth as a sign that they're a better man uh, than the hardworking person, the dad, the d- devoted father or husband. Uh, who actually resembles the kind of admirable qualities that we should look up to uh, in American life. Look, I, I think that, you know, whatever we learn uh, about this uh, about this uh, fellow, Mr. Tate, uh, in the coming months, uh, it apparently includes, you know, allegations that could lead to his uh, being extradited to the U.K. or even to the U.S. based on uh, tax and money laundering charges that are apparently pending there. Um it's another example, I think, of this uh, ridiculous side of influencer culture that has taken over uh, our modern uh, conversation around heroism and what we value uh, in life. Being an influencer is not a career. Uh, it's not something that we should really look up to or applaud. It's not about creating. You know, in, uh, Mr. Tate is someone who, uh, you know, became famous because he was uh, removed from uh, Big Brother back in 2016, the British version of the TV show, uh, for attacking a woman physically. Uh, he had a career as a minor kickboxer 
beforehand. He was not somebody who was actually building something. Instead, it looks as if he was essentially creating a uh, a house of cards built on uh, both the creation of pornographic material, potentially sex trafficking, potentially human trafficking, uh, potentially engaged in all sorts of uh, different frauds related to that, uh, and uh, using it to promote this uh, over-the-top masculine uh, luxury lifestyle which is not, in fact, a reflection of uh, you know true economic prowess, uh, inventing anything, creating anything, uh, growing anything, building any kind of true business. Instead, it's built on exploitation and lies. One of the things that I think we should appreciate about this particular moment when it comes to social media is that there's a lot more of that going on than you might think. And it goes on all around us. You see this uh, as an outgrowth, I think, of the quote-unquote reality TV community uh, where you have people go from kind of living fake lives in front of the camera to living fake lives online and profiting from it uh, by hustling and by you know engaging in you know oftentimes pre-planned uh, and ridiculous over-the-top fights uh, that are only meant to increase uh, their own support uh, from people who have an affinity for their approach. To me, that's something that we ought to reject. We ought to reject it as being uh, false on its face. We ought to look to teach our children to reject it and to say, no, these people are not cool. These are not admirable. These are not the people you should look up to. You should not build your life around the idea of being an influencer on social media, on Twitter, on Instagram, on TikTok, or on anything else. That's just not going to lead to a fulfilling life. And yes, it can get you access to a lot of crazy things for a time, but it's also not something that is a career. It's not sustainable And it's not admirable. And it's not going to give you something to look back on as you get older that you will look back on with pride. From my perspective, this arrest uh, of Andrew Tate is long overdue. I hope it leads to a lot of people who espoused him or defended him uh, to reassess a lot of their assumptions about him to actually look into this. And here's a general tip. If someone says that they have the people that they uh, you know, either have in their employ or that they have as girlfriends, if they mandate that they uh, make a tattoo of their name on it uh, uh, saying that they're their property, that's never a really good sign. So from my perspective, uh, you know, good luck to these Romanian prosecutors. We'll see what comes out of this case. I'm sure it's going to be even crazier than the things that are already publicly known that are being reported. Uh, but we'll see where they go from here, and I hope that it's a lesson not just on the nature of of looking to these kind of uh, influencer, you know, popular, over-the-top masculine guys as being the definition of masculinity in a kind of uh, chest-pounding way among too many online, particularly those on the right. Uh, but I think hope it's also a broader lesson about the level to which we have prioritized uh, the people who – live their lives online uh, in this way as having a far too great role in determining our priorities, what our kids think, what we think about things, uh, and instead take a more somber, serious approach uh, to who we value and who we uplift as being the heroes for our time. I'm Ben Dominic. You're listening to The Guy Benson Show. We'll be back with more right after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. And we're back on The Guy Benson Show. I'm your host for the day, Ben Dominich. You can follow me on Twitter, at B Dominich. 
on this, the last Friday of 2022. I know that there are a lot of people who are still suffering because of the problems that have been affecting the airline industry. And I want to uh, just start off by playing a a few of the folks who were frustrated travelers uh, stranded by Southwest over the past couple of days. Cut one. I was supposed to fly out on Christmas Eve, December 24th, and Southwest um, just canceled me with no, no notice. And now I've been canceled three times. You'd think they would have been aware of that uh, before this busy holiday season. Well, obviously disappointed in the Southwest. We feel very, uh, very uh, angry because we already have everything planned for our Christmas vacation. Wait, it didn't come right. It didn't happen. Because the Southwest Airline. If they cancel this flight here, we're stuck here another day. So now i got to hopefully find another hotel, pay for more food, more cabs, you know, just a lot of other things, um, pay for people to keep watching our house for longer. You know, one of the things that is underrated about all of this is that, you know, in if you look over the past year, you will see all of these different failures that all have to do with transportation, whether that's the ships getting stuck off of the shore and not being able to get things onto land that uh, many people needed, leading to shortages across the country that really were unexpected for a lot of Americans, or whether it's uh, the problems that happened when it came to truckers, when it came to uh, trains and, and uh, you know, potential strikes and the like uh, that also, you know, had a majorly disruptive effect for a lot of people. And when you look at, at obviously, air travel, uh, having major problems uh, for so many different uh, reasons, this only the most recent uh, you can almost say, well, you know, this is an area where we might, you know, hope that there was, uh, you know, someone in charge who could actually make a difference uh, and, uh, and you know, really knew what they were doing when it came to regulation or when it came to uh, responding to such challenges. And yet Pete Buttigieg continues to be profiled as if he is this, uh, you know, incredible wunderkind, you know, who is uh, destined for the presidency regardless of, uh, how things are going under his watch at the Department of Transportation. And the the thing that was you know, really amazing about this in particular is that as much as uh, there is frustration around what's happened with Southwest, apparently these were problems that were well-known within the company for quite some time. Cut three. Southwest wasn't prepared. And unfortunately, this has been a decade in the making. We have sounded alarm bells. Um, we have We have tried to get them to change processes. But it's a combination of processes, outdated technology, and infrastructure. When one domino falls, it creates so many other issues. We start each day with enough pilots, flight attendants, ramp agents, customer service agents there to do the job. But once one interruption occurs, it's those processes that cause the need for so many more people. And that's kind of the efficiency and and the problem with the processes. That statement from Casey Murray, who is the Southwest Airlines Pilots Association president. This is a situation that I think ought to be really a death knell for Pete Buttigieg's hopes of being uh, considered on, on the ranks of potential replacements for Joe Biden, as many have tried to make him uh, in the donor community on the Democratic side, uh, in the kind of technocratic neoliberal community over the past uh, year plus. 
And uh, from my perspective, it's also kind of a an indication of how much the Democratic Party is out of touch with the average American. You know, as much as Joe Biden won in 2020 uh, because he was not Donald Trump and because people had tired of many aspects of Donald Trump's approach, it really was a very close election. And I think that one of the things that really has emerged from it is a realization among smarter Democrats that uh, pretty much any other Democrat out of that 2020 field would probably have lost that election, just given the map and the way things turned out uh, for uh, Joe Biden versus Trump. Unfortunately, I don't think that that's a lesson that a lot of people in Washington or in the Democratic donor community are listening to. Now, why is that? It's because they would very much like to move away from someone who has any kind of of populist uh, background, any kind of ability to connect to the the union worker, uh, the talk of of being from Scranton, uh, the talk of uh, you know old Joe with his Irish charm and that kind of thing, it, none of that appeals to them, and so they would like to move on to someone who basically looks like what he is, which is you know a McKinsey guy to come in and basically you know turn things uh, over and and make things better in a technocratic way. Except he's failing at doing exactly that. He here he is given the charge of making things run better uh, within uh, transportation in America, a, a, a task that is certainly sizable, but uh, also deals with frustrations that affect a huge number of people. He's allowed to spend a gigantic amount of money in order to try to achieve these aims. Uh, And yet what comes of this? Just more uh, fractiousness, more uh, upset, more uh, of the kind of crises that we've seen play out over this past uh, year plus. Uh, And unfortunately, I don't think they're going to end anytime soon. When Pete Buttigieg eventually walks away from this, it's going to be as another aspect of neoliberal technocratic failure uh, of someone who you know, had uh, great promise from the outside, who was framed as being uh, someone who could come in and fix things. But perhaps we should have looked at the state of the way things were in South Bend more closely uh, to, to see what would happen when it came time to actually deal with the major problems, the divisive problems of uh, major industries as we see within the transportation world. You know, unfortunately, though, this is a situation that is precipitated by our dominant media focus, which frames uh, someone like Mayor Pete as being, you know, our inevitable uh, glorious future. And, um, and it's not something that I think in any way uh, actually connects with uh, normal people, but it sure does connect with a lot of rich people who uh, who don't have the, uh, you know, uh, ennoble experience generally of flying Southwest Airlines. Uh, it's not something that they uh, normally participate in. And so I think that this is one of the reasons why we're only going to concede, con- see continued efforts to try to make Mayor Pete happen to try to make a Kamala Harris, uh, Pete Buttigieg future something that is defended and lauded from uh, the airwaves on CNN and on MSNBC, uh, from the pages of the Washington Post, the New York Times, New York Mag, and the Atlantic, uh, all of them, you know, suggesting that this is someone 
who is eminently qualified to be in the job of the president or the vice president when all he's done since he got into his actual first actual real job in terms of a federal task, uh, anything beyond uh, you know the level of imagination, he's only shown us how bad he is when the lights actually come on and you have to do the job of government. I'm Ben Dominich. You're listening to uh, The Guy Benson Show. I'm happy to be your guest host for today. Coming up next, we'll be talking about New Year's Eve plans with Rachel Campos Duffy. We'll be back with more right after this. o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. And we're back on the Guy Benson Show. I'm your guest host for today, the last Friday of 2022, Ben Dominic. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Dominic, and I'm happy to be joined by the host of the Will Kane Show, Will Kane, who is uh, give, giving us some uh, pinch hit duty. Rachel Campos Duffy uh, couldn't join us after all. Will, thanks so much for taking the time. What's up, Ben? Good to talk to you, man. So uh, I have to ask you first off, how do you prep for uh, being constantly celebratory on New Year's coverage night? <laughs> well, I'll give you the... Um... I'll give you the short-term game plan that I've been I've been executing over the past 12 hours, and I'll give you the the long-term outlook on New Year's. Okay. If I ranked my holidays, this is the long-term outlook. If I ranked my holidays throughout the year, I would have traditionally said the New Year's is last place. Like it's not, it's not my favorite. The bang for the buck, the sense of expectation. You know, the pressure put on New Year's to go out and have a good time, it didn't work out. Whereas, like, you know, Thanksgiving and Fourth of July are in, in running for number one because there's so little pressure on those two holidays. It's just about, hey, just have a good time. Whatever happens, happens. Um, but having done this last year, last year was the first time I did this um, with Pete and Rachel. And now that I'm gearing up for my second go around on hosting New Year's, this is a perfect way for me to spend it. It is a lot of fun, man. We're at the wild horse saloon in Nashville, Tennessee. We get musical acts. We get to hang out with our friends for three hours, ring in the new year. It's not hard, man. It's not hard to, to gear up and have a good time. And in the short term execution over the last 12 hours, well, I landed in Nashville today. I took my boys and my wife directly drove to Pete Hegseth's house he has 77 acres outside of town, and we rode dirt bikes for about an hour and a half. I crashed. I'm covered in mud. I'm covered in mud, man, but I had a ball. <laughs> That's, that sounds like great prep. <laughs> uh, but what, and what, what, uh, what led to your ignominious crash? So, okay, I don't know about you, Ben, but like, I'm not like a two-wheel person i'm more like <laughs> i remember when i was a kid my dad bought us three-wheelers and i thought they were the greatest in retrospect those were the most dangerous things right the three-wheeler they <laughs> they discontinued it i think i don't even know if you can get yeah. one anymore but um um i rode a moped when i was 15 i got on it in my buddy's driveway and i was screamed across the street hit the opposite curb endowed over the front steering wheel 
uh, under the handlebars and uh, said, I'm never getting on again. So I haven't been on a bike, a motorbike in 30 years, man. And so what happened is I got on and, you know, the throttle is the handle and I didn't feel it out. I just kind of goosed it and it ran out from under me. But then when you do that, you try to hang on because I'm trying to reach the handbrake and all I'm doing is giving it more gas. So it's running away from me and I'm trying to hang on to the handlebars and, um, it just spilled me out across. I mean, there's a bunch of mud out here in Tennessee. Spilled me and the bike out of about a five, six yard track of mud. I, I hope I hope someone caught that on video. That's uh, and if so, you should definitely share it. Um, you know, I, I I agree with you about about New Year's Eve. I actually have my own uh, personal uh, problem with it, which is that I I was born on New Year's Day, and that means that oh. uh, my my entire experience of my entire life uh, basically is everyone's too. Uh, tired and hung or and or hung over to actually do anything fun on my birthday <laughs> so so it it requires uh you know a little bit of of humility i guess when it comes to uh expecting people to celebrate uh in in that frame uh for a 48 hour period instead of uh, instead of just the night um but i i do want to talk to you Real a little quick, bit ben, my oldest yeah. son my oldest son is in your situation he is oh, really? january 2nd January 2nd birthday, but he likes it so far because it's like Christmas is over and then, oh, no, it's not over a week later. <laughs> oh. So he does, but he, does he avoid, but does he avoid the combo gift, the dreaded combo gift of, well, this, this is your Christmas and your, and your birthday. <laughs> well, the truth is he's sitting here shaking his head at me right now. That's why I hesitate. So you're not into having a January 2nd birthday anymore? <laughs> Yeah, you'd rather, so it turns out, Ben, there's, there's an update. There's an update. He would rather update. have it spread out. And the, the, yes, there's it, been it a material be a change. Gift, but, but it may not be a combo gift, but you get a little short, shorted on the second go round. Well, he'll, he'll. Uh, I'm sure he'll come to experience that more uh, as he gets older, and, and his uh, friends are still uh, still uh, ordering greasy food and, and nursing their headaches. Um, I, I want to talk. I want to talk to you about uh, something way more important to me than uh, than New Year's, which is uh, the uh, the NFC East. So your Dallas Cowboys uh, last night, uh, obviously, you know, took care of business uh, against the uh, Tennessee Titans uh, and kept the pressure on the Eagles. Uh, and so my big question for you, and big important question, is: Is there any possibility that you're going to sit your starters next week against Washington? <laughs> <laughs> Last game of the season, yeah, I think there definitely is. Because um, the only really thing the Cowboys are playing for right now um, is the hope that the Eagles lose out this weekend yeah. and next weekend, and then the Cowboys have a chance to win the division. And I mean, it's such a low probability that's going to happen. So, mm -hmm. um, the so if the Eagles win this weekend, I don't see there's nothing the, the for the Cowboys to play for next weekend. Nothing. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're yeah. they're secured the top wild card spot play the Buccaneers most likely in the first round and you guys are fighting for a playoff spot yep yep um, fighting unfortunately which, with uh with the likes of Carson Wentz being named the starter which still if uh, I can't quite I fathom um how strong do you think this Cowboys team is going into it um and do you have any kind of fear assuming that that Bucks matchup is what you end up with of a you know last gasp Tom Brady pull one out of the hat kind of thing well no one's had more respect for tom brady throughout his career than me like i think this i've said before i'm never counting tom brady out when the party's over i'll be the guy that hits the lights i got it i'm not gonna be, i you know i was on espn all those years with max kellerman predicting tom brady going over the cliff what a, 
It's like the worst take in the history of takes, right? <laughs> it's been wrong like half really a dozen is. times over. <laughs> but um, like the, the career he had after Max said he was going over the cliff is a yeah. I, I actually should go back and look at the first time he said that because since then it's been uh, it's been almost it was as like 2016. As He's a Hall yeah. of Famer from that point forward. <laughs> um, but. But uh, actually, I, I love the matchup for the Cowboys against the Bucks. I, I'm I'm really confident in that. Mm-hmm. No, I mean the, the, I think the Cowboys are really good. Um, but Dak Prescott is turning the ball over a really concerning amount of time, and the defense isn't as strong as we thought it was at one point. So, but I definitely think they're also a team that could win the NFC. So, yeah. I, I you know I'm confident, but I'm like a shell shocked confident fan. What has been the most shocking thing to you about uh, this year's NFL season, uh, just in terms of the the experience in the NFC and some of the storylines that we've seen play off? You know, the falling back of the Packers, uh, the uh, you know occasional you know incredible finishes for the Vikings and the like. What what really sticks out to you as a major storyline that was unexpected? Well, I mean, I, I don't know if it's a, a compelling storyline, but it just strikes me that this is a season win when um, you could probably name, at least in the NFC, four or five teams that have a – I mean, I think the Eagles are really good. I'm not convinced the Eagles are head and shoulders above everybody yeah. else in the next four or five. So it's pretty wide open is the point I'm getting at. And, and I mean, the AFC is a little less less so. But if you add in the Bills and the Chiefs, and I don't know. I mean, there's times when you think the Chargers are really good, or like that. then you then you start thinking, is there eight teams that go in the Super Bowl this year? So that's the yeah. thing about this season that feels different to me than other seasons. There's just no clear, absolute favorite, at least in the NFC. Maybe if you want to make the argument for the Chiefs or Bills, I I'd understand. But um, mm-hmm. so so what? A third of the NFL, not a third, a little less than a third of the NFL's fan base has a legit chance or reason to hope that they have a chance to win the Super Bowl. Do you see this as a playoffs where Kirk Cousins can kind of, can finally show that he's capable of of getting all the way there? No, <laughs> you know yeah. my buddy Pete's a, a Vikings fan too, so I think they're the biggest pretenders of the of the five. That I think and, the frauds. And look, I'm a little <laughs> I'm a little jaded by it because like the Cowboys blew them out like hor- horrifically, you know, like mm-hmm. mercy ruled them almost. Uh, so. So no, I'm not a I'm not a believer in the Vikings or Kirk Cousins for that matter. Yeah, I, I just I I think that they're a- absolute pretenders. You know, when I look though at at some of these uh, some of the possibilities, you know, going forward, you know, you have to be frustrated a little bit. I mean, I don't know what your attitude is towards watching their offense, but you know, I I love watching Kyle Shanahan's office offenses. I you know I I just find them to be you know fascinating. Do you think that the 49ers can piece things together even with their quarterback situation? Man, you're exactly right, though. That coach is so good. That defense is so good. That running game is so good. It's just, can you believe in, like, a rookie quarterback, you know, mm-hmm. in Brock Purdy? Um, he's a rookie, right? Or is he, did he sit for a year? Uh, yes. Whatever. He's totally yeah. inexperienced. Um, but, um, no, ultimately, I think it has to catch up with him. Well, but, I mean, they're incredibly dangerous. Mm-hmm. If you Let's say you were the Eagles or the Cowboys or whatever. Uh, my takeaway isn't, oh, we have the, the Niners this weekend. Awesome. Feel confident. Absolutely not. But I think for them to string together, you know, they're, they're the two seed now. But so them to string together three games in a row to get to the Super Bowl, I don't see that with their quarterback situation. 
Mm-hmm. A last question. I saw it uh, come over the, the ticker that uh, Terrell Owens was unable to reach an agreement to come back. <laughs> I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> to come back to the Cowboys because apparently he's asked for too much money. <laughs> so, do, do how, is that, that... <laughs> how is that a real story? <laughs> I know. I know. But, but, you know, I just think he, he looks at he looks at Tom Brady. And he's like, I could still do it at 49, too. So uh, uh, do you have any hopes that do you think that he the Cowboys ought to pick him up just for the heck of it? No, emphatically, no. <laughs> you know, I'm sure he's in great shape. If you're 49 years old, you take whatever money they're offering you. <laughs> you know, yeah. no, there's no way there was a money problem. I can't believe the Cowboys <laughs> were realistically interested. No, I don't believe that story. Uh, I'm sure he could still do those push-ups in the driveway, though. So, <laughs> anyway, good luck on New Year's. I hope you. I, I hope you have a. Uh, I hope you have a great. Uh, a great time uh, celebrating it in uh, in Nashville with the rest of the crew, and uh, good luck getting cleaned up from that dirt bike. Thanks, man. Fox News, watch us tomorrow night. Ring in the new year with Fox News. Appreciate you guys. <laughs> Thank you, Will. You're listening to The Guy Benson Show. I'm your guest host for today, Ben Dominich. We'll be back with more right after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. And we're back on The Guy Benson Show. I'm your guest host for today, the last Friday of 2022, Ben Dominich. You can follow me on Twitter at BDominich. I'm editor-at-large at The Spectator and obviously a Fox News contributor and a friend of Guy Benson for many, many years. I remember when he was just a, a callow, upstarting youth. Uh, I want to uh, just break in uh, a little bit here with a story that I think uh, you know, perhaps is not going to get the kind of notice that it normally would uh, if it was uh, taking place in a normal time of consuming news. And that's this story about uh, Congresswoman Katie Porter from California. You, you probably are familiar with her as someone who's gone viral for all these progressive moments where she's uh, confronted various people who are testifying in front of her committee. Uh, but it turns out that she's engaged in some behavior when it comes to the treatment of her staff that certainly rises to a level of concern. Uh, according to a report written by Robbie Suave in Reason Magazine, uh, she track, uh, she responded to a staffer who may have given her COVID or may have exposed her to COVID uh, by essentially dumping her before the end of a legislative fellowship. Uh, Robbie writes, Sasha Georgiades is a uh, U.S. Navy veteran. She's stationed in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, deployed with the 7th Fleet to the waters of Eastern Asia. In the fall of 2020, she joined the staff of Katie Porter as a Wounded Warrior Fellow, working on outreach and assistance to service members. Her fellowship technically ended in August of 2022. In reality, things came to an abrupt halt several weeks earlier on July 9th, when Porter retaliated against Georgiatis for allegedly giving her COVID. On Thursday, screenshots of text messages that purport to show Porter demoting Georgiatis to remote employment surfaced on Twitter. Georgiatis confirmed the authenticity of these screenshots in an interview with Reason. Porter never spoke a word to me after this, says Georgiatis, who now works as a consultant. The texts read in part, why did you not follow office protocol on testing? It's really disappointing. That's from Porter. I'm terribly sorry. You're right. I should have done better. Just because I felt okay in the moment doesn't mean that I was. Sasha Porter responds, I cannot allow you back in the office. Given your failure to follow office policies, Cody will be in touch about having your personal effects shipped or delivered to your home. We'll lay out your remote work schedule and responsibilities for your last few weeks. 
Georgiatis responds by apologizing for lack of forethought or not getting tested when she felt a little under the weather. Well, you gave me COVID, Porter responds. In 25 months, it took you not following the rules to get me sick. My children have nobody to care for them. According to Georgiatis, the office protocol on testing that Porter claimed she violated was failing to take a COVID test the instant she felt even slightly unwell. Georgiatis maintains an active lifestyle. She goes to the gym almost every day, and she says that at first she thought she was just sore from exercise. At the time, I felt okay, just sore as if I had worked out too hard, she says. It was hard to differentiate until the next morning. As soon as I felt sick, I took a test, told the district director I had it, and stayed home. Nevertheless, Porter contracted COVID around that same time and blamed Georgiatis. This is a situation that I think is time and again revealing itself about these, uh, you know, uh, ultra aggressive uh, COVID folks when it comes to the Democratic left and the media left on these so many counts. The, the conversations that they have about getting rid of people who won't get vaccinated, about firing people who won't uh, follow a very ruthless, uh, you know, approach to trying to avoid a disease that, frankly, the vast majority of us will get at some point, just given the odds, uh, is it really, in, in retrospect, uh, pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing that we have people who still were able to delude themselves that they could, you know, if if everything just works perfectly, you're never going to be exposed to this, particularly people like our representatives, uh, you know, who have to be around so many different constituents and staffers uh, and people who are probably going to lead them to exposure at some point. Look, even our best healthcare professionals, people who are at the highest levels of the bureaucracy when it comes to this, the areas of health policy, are also people who have repeatedly tested positive for COVID. And you would assume that they would follow all of the protocols that they are obviously advocating for uh, vociferously in our media and pushing for behind the scenes uh, when it comes to bureaucratic regulations and law. This is something that I think ought to be an indictment of Representative Porter. It's something that does not reflect well on her. And rather than having any kind of grace or forgiveness uh, towards someone like this, a veteran and someone working through the Wounded Warrior Fellowship of all things, uh, you know, is uh, something that just really ought to be a real blot on her career and something that she should have to respond to. Of course, because she's a Democrat and because she really only talks to Democrats in the media uh, or her fellow Democrats, that's something that she's probably going to avoid and dodge. And I doubt that she'll ever have to respond uh, for this type of decision, this aggressive and wrong decision that she made in this instance. You're listening to The Guy Benson Show. I'm Ben Dominich, your guest host for today, the last Friday of 2022. We'll be back with more right after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. And we're back on the Guy Benson Show. I'm your guest host for today, the last Friday in 2022. I'm Ben Dominich. You can follow me on Twitter at the Dominich. I want to uh, come in with a bit of audio from the father of uh, Kaylee Gonsalves, uh, the uh, tragically murdered college student uh, whose uh, murderer is at least uh, purportedly in custody now. Uh, Steve Gonsalves uh, talking uh, just in the last few minutes on Fox News. Uh, cut 22. It was 
was important for us to have this person of interest in custody so they weren't possibly in that audience because we made it open and we knew if we, we made ourselves vulnerable like that, we didn't want somebody to be taking advantage of that and feeding off that. We definitely don't want to feed somebody who's, you know, a predator to our environment. So it's nice that we have this closure. Um, there's a lot of prayers going across America. Uh, that's obviously him talking about the uh, ceremony that they were having today uh, to honor uh, his daughter's life. Uh, let's hear a little bit more from him about the uh, outpouring of tips that came in that uh, apparently played a role in helping track down this individual. Cut 23. It felt like we were all in this together, and I feel like everybody did something that was uncomfortable they uh, took photos. They submitted information. They took time. And um, in the end, I hope, when the story's all said and told, that we actually do find out that some of these tips and leads from the community were critical. And I would not be surprised if that's, you know, this is going to be a community-based justice that uh, was exercised in this whole process. You know, I think it's one of the things that we have to deal with, you know, in any situation like this. We always have to say, you know, that this is purported. This is something that, you know, has been reported. Uh, and so we have to hope in this instance that, you know, ultimately it is proven that this uh, individual, you know, is is the person uh, who did this horrible act um, and is hopefully being brought to justice. Uh, we'll obviously be continuing to cover this story at Fox Another story that I wanted to bring to your attention, which we've been paying attention to over the past couple of weeks, is an odd one involving a local high school here in Virginia, uh, one of, considered one of the top uh, schools in the entire Commonwealth uh, and, uh, and generally one of, of quite uh, some prominence uh, in the area. Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology, known as TJ, uh, in Alexandria, where you had this incredible story that has been getting some national attention about the alleged delaying of giving academic awards uh, for years uh, to a number of different students who had qualified for them, in part because of uh, concerns about the meritocracy of uh, the classroom and whether other students who didn't receive these awards would be offended by it. Uh, Asra Namani, who's uh, a Fairfax County uh, school parent uh, whose uh, child was affected by this directly, uh, has been all over this. You may be familiar with her as a local activist on a number of different educational questions. Uh, and what she's been saying about what went on uh, is really pretty amazing. Cut 17. This year, the entire controversy just blew up because the kids got their certificates weeks after early college application deadlines, just dropped onto their desks as if it was just another piece of paper. And this amazing mom named Shauna Yasher started asking questions, just like every parent's got to do, you know, from issues of the drag queen story hours to indoctrination in the schools. This is another form of this race to the bottom that schools are going through right now. She had more to say on this. Cut 16. The principal, Ann Bonitatibus, and her director of student services have hidden from students, the, their families, and the public 
an honor called Commended Students Among the National Merit Scholarship Award winners. And those are 3% of the kids in America. They, are, um, they number just, you know, about 65,000 out of the 1.5 million. And if you can believe it, the director of student services told this intrepid mother who helped figure this out that the school wanted to recognize students in, as individuals, not their achievements, as if the two had to be separated. This really is part of this whole uh, adversity uh, that people are trying to experience, are starting to experience right now within the educational environment. If they rise too high above the pack, uh, it's really a push for a type of unanimity of outcome. Uh, in terms of the different experiences that students have, regardless of whether they're being successful with their work or not. The school has even reportedly implemented a, a policy that awards students a 50% just for showing up to class, eliminating zeros being uh, given entirely. This is the sort of thing that I think we ought to be uh, viewing as an item of increased concern, particularly in an era in which Educational outcomes have uh, totally been dumbed down uh, and I think are only going to be continually dumbed down in the wake of the uh, COVID ramifications. The shutdowns and lockdowns that precipitated uh, students moving backwards in learning in so many different respects in ways that we're only beginning to comprehend and be able to measure, uh, that is going to lead, I believe, to a lot of these public schools and institutions really trying to game the system, to try to basically make it as if those lockdowns and suppression of student learning had no impact or never really happened. Uh, they want to essentially pretend like all of these students can be restored to the same level quite easily. And of course, since that's not the case, they're going to have to precipitate this by engaging in behavior along the lines of what Asra and her fellow Fairfax County uh, parents are experiencing with their student uh, children, which is that they're going to experience a situation where exceptionalism and being really good at your uh, educational achievement metrics is something looked down on. It's something that's a problem. They don't want to, you know, offend any of the other students who get the, didn't get this particular uh, measure or award. And so because of that, we're going to hand these things out uh, in ways that, you know, don't make them seem all that important uh, or, you know, denigrate the idea of being particularly exceptional in any respect. Look, I think it's all fun and games to participate in this type of behavior until you get to the point where your math and uh, and overall achievement scores are falling so far behind the rest of the developed world and developing world that your students are simply too poorly equipped to actually go to college, that they have to take lesser degrees, that they can't pursue the same type of competitive uh, learning environments that they might have in the past. This all flows into, by the way, uh, the same type of concerns that have been 
argued now before the Supreme Court uh, regarding uh, affirmative action on uh, in higher education, uh, the way that students are treated differently, and uh, you know, frankly, the way that Asian students in particular are targeted because of their high levels of achievement, uh, that they have to be taken down a peg in some kind of respect from the perspective of these different colleges, uh, lest they have a student base that is uh, too uh, ethnically balanced in one direction or another, according to their whims. Look, I think that one of the things that we have to be concerned about going forward is that this dumbing down agenda that is being advocated for by these teachers at the same time that they're demanding more and more money and more and more job security uh, from the government is something that, you know, frankly, critics of it really don't have an answer for. Um, yes, school choice is a good thing. Yes, more freedom in education is a good thing. And certainly that's one of the silver linings that has emerged uh, from this uh, post-pandemic era that a lot of people are basically saying, hey, look, I don't want my kid, don't want to pay to, uh, the, my taxes to send my kid to a school that just doesn't teach them the kind of things that they need to learn in order to succeed in a competitive marketplace. But that's not going to be enough, I don't think, for a lot of families who really are going to be dependent on these public school systems, regardless of whether they're, uh, you know, in a situation where they can't move out of the area that they're in or, you know, whether their kids are still going to struggle uh, in even a, a more privatized environment or something along those lines. There's going to be tons of kids who still go through these public school systems. And so because of that, I would really encourage people who care about education in this country to not abandon the fight to save public schools from this terrible circumstance that they have seemed to be headed toward thanks to the overwhelming leftism and the opposition to exceptionalism that is, uh, that is being pushed by our very powerful teachers' unions all across America. Look, it's, it's not going to be a fight that is easy. But I do think that we can't give up on the idea that the schoolhouse and a proper education is something that every child should be able to expect from the school in their community in America. We can't accept this level of corruption of the system, corruption of the, the teachers who are supposed to be uh, you know, lauded and respected in our lives uh, to such a point that we just give up on an entire aspect of what the government pays for with our tax dollars. Uh, that's not going to be, I think, uh, feasible in the long term. And so, look, as much as I appreciate and applaud the steps that have been uh, taken in the past two years in order to increase school choice, much as I am happy to see the number of people who are choosing to continue to homeschool or to go into different other educational environments, co-op uh, co schools and the like, uh, to try to innovate within this space, and provide their children with a better education than what they would get by going to the schoolhouse down the road, I do think that that's something that we should aspire to as a country. It's been around in America for a long time. We need to fundamentally change things about the system. We need to move away from the German school approach that has been, I think, a real uh, disaster in terms of the way that it has equipped or, uh, or failed to equip our students for uh, the for the creative economy and for the kinds of things that they need to do now. But I do not think that we should uh, give up this fight for restoring public education as being something that is valuable and that is viewed with respect within our communities in the future. I'm Ben Dominich. You're listening to The Guy Benson Show. We'll be back with more right after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. 
And we're back on The Guy Benson Show. I'm your host for today, the last Friday in 2022, Ben Dominich. You can follow me on Twitter at BDominich. You can subscribe to my newsletter at thetransom.com uh, and to the magazine where I am editor-at-large at thespectator.com. Uh, I want to close things out with a, a little bit of a positive story, uh, something that has been uh, of interest to me as a development in the last uh, couple of years is the changing nature of bookstores in America. And there's a piece by Ted Joya uh, in his own Substack uh, uh, that is out today on the turnaround of Barnes & Noble. They hired a new CEO in 2019 after having the company basically fall apart over the course of a couple of years, turn into basically a place where you would buy toys as opposed to buy books and the like. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, this is obviously an era in which people talk about moving on from books, that ebooks are the future and that, you know, people uh, don't necessarily read anymore and the like. The truth is, actually, that's not true at all. In fact, people are uh, buying books at a, a very steady pace. And, and in fact, Barnes & Noble has reaped the benefit of it by reasserting themselves as a bookstore first and primarily, uh, they uh, have experienced a rebound in sales. They've hired people again. Uh, they opened 16 stores this year and plan to open more next year. And the secret, as Ted Joya outlines, is that uh, it's actually that the CEO is someone who really likes books. Uh, what a revolutionary idea. He likes the, uh, He was someone who started out running a, a bookstore uh, and then a book company in the UK, turning things around for them. And now he's turned things around for an American-based bookstore as well. Uh, and that's something that I think is very good. It's a good choice to read more whenever you're heading into a new year. One of the uh, best books that I read this past year is, car is called Art and Faith, A Theology of Making by Makoto Fujimura. I would recommend it to you. It's a very interesting look at the idea of faith as an influence toward the creative arts in a way that I think um, is pretty inspiring to learn uh, from both uh, the work of this artist and the way that he thinks about uh, the, uh, the creation process uh, and what he's giving to the world by engaging in it. We all create different things in our lives uh, in different ways, regardless of whether we do it as work or as something in our own time. Uh, and I think that it's good to think about what you're doing with that process, uh, what you're learning through it, and what you are teaching to those around you. Uh, it seems to me also a good idea to enter the new year with resolutions about uh, taking time to yourself to think more about things. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, a book that came out uh, several years ago uh, that is called Deep Work uh, that I recommend to a lot of people. It's on the concept of taking time to away from the, uh, the rigmarole and the constant uh, influx of uh, news and information in order to think deeply about things uh, that are uh, of interest to you. It's by Cal Newport, if you want to check it out. He teaches at Georgetown. It's one of these things that I think uh, is very important, particularly for the industry of the media. I wish people would do more deep work and deep thinking about what they are doing and what they are reporting, as opposed to simply going along with the flow, checking what just got posted on Twitter, uh, looking at the latest little uh, piece of information, and just assuming that you know the full story, as opposed to digging in deep learning about things, reading about things, listening to new voices and to new inputs about things, and reevaluating the things that you learn 
along the way. Finally, I think that there's you know one thing that I always try to remember, which is that the new year is going to bring challenges as hopeful as we are uh, for what it might bring. There's a poem, an old one from Ogden Nash called Good Riddance, But Now What? that comes to mind. Come children, gather round my knee. Something is about to be. Tonight's December 31st. Something is about to burst. The clock is crouching dark and small like a time bomb in the hall. Hark, it's midnight, children dear. Duck, here comes another year. So for all of you, as we head into 2023 and leave 2022 behind, I hope that you will have a happy new year for you and your loved ones. I hope that it brings you new knowledge, new opportunities, uh, new uh, experiences, and also a time that you can take to yourself for deep thinking about things, time that you can spend with your family and loved ones doing things that are not just the humdrum demands of life or of career, but that actually are meaningful in the big scheme of things. Certainly, that's what I hope that my new year brings, though with another daughter right around the corner, uh, arriving at any moment in January, I'm not sure how many of these things I'll be able to do myself, at least in the early going. I doubt I'll be taking more time to read. I'll have enough diapers in hand that I'll have to deal with. I want to thank you all for listening to this edition of The Guy Benson Show. I'm Ben Dominich. It's been a pleasure to speak with you all today, and I hope that this next year turns out to be a wonderful one for you all. So until next time, until next year, I'm Ben Dominich, and it's been a pleasure with you in this 2022. The Will Kane Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Kane as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.